Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. We're glad you found us. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and today we'll be discussing how we can heal from the individual and collective grief that results from the impact of social and collective trauma. And I am delighted to welcome Michelle Cassandra Johnson as my guest today. Michelle is a social justice warrior, author, dismantling racism trainer, yoga teacher, and practitioner. With over 20 years of experience in leading dismantling racism work and working with clients as a licensed clinical social worker, Michelle has a deep understanding of how trauma impacts the mind, body, spirit, and heart. She's the author of the book, Skill in Action, and a second book, which we are discussing today, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief. Michelle also has a podcast called Finding Refuge. You can find out more about Michelle and her work at her website, Michelle. Michelle cjohnson.com. Welcome, Michelle Johnson. I'm so glad you could join me on the Yoga Hour today. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. So before we dive into our dialogue about healing from collective grief, let's start with a yoga moment. Let's start by bringing ourselves fully present right here and right now. Let's begin by letting go of whatever we were doing earlier today and any concern about what might happen later on and just bringing our attention to our body, just feeling our body in space, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting, perhaps we're standing or walking or driving, just feeling our body in space and feeling the surfaces that support our body. Where are our feet? What part of our weight is supported if we're sitting in a chair? And then just bringing our attention to the breath. It's a wonderful tool that's always with us. And just notice as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale. And exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the expansion of the body. And on the exhale, feeling that release 
On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how the air is now warmed. And just continuing to focus on our breath. Here's something to contemplate, a teaching from the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. This is from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. When we call to Divine Mother in times of distress, we are rousing the presence of pure love within us, inviting the waters of compassion to douse the flames of sorrow. When we let go of clinging to sorrow, divine love finds its way in. When we call to Divine Mother in times of distress, we are rousing the presence of pure love within us, inviting the waters of compassion to douse the flames of sorrow. When we let go of clinging to sorrow, divine love finds its way in. Once again, Michelle Cassandra Johnson, welcome to the Yoga Hour. As I mentioned, um, you have worked for many, many years, you know, in this area that we're going to be discussing today of of uh, trauma, and um, I, I really appreciated so much about your book, uh, Finding Refuge, uh, which is about the collective uh, grief and ways to uh, find uh, healing from that. Um, this podcast, the Yoga Hour, is a program of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. And um, our founder, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, was really um, very uh, moved and disturbed by the death of George Floyd and started um, a group of our ministry leaders to create a, a program which is called Racial Justice and Compassionate Right Action. We've also had other spiritual teachers such as Reverend Reverend Kamala Itzel Hayward, Dr. Larry Ward, and Reverend Priya Friday Pabros on this podcast in the past to talk about racism and spiritual right action. And we really appreciate your work and your books as a valuable addition to our efforts at educating ourselves and our community. The subtitle of your book is Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief. So can you, would you say a little bit more about that for our listeners? I think we're all familiar uh, with personal grief, with individual grief. So what, when you talk about collective grief, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, thank you for your, your question and the work you all are doing. Um, and what comes to mind first is that the, the background for Finding Refuge and just the whole time, the entire time I was writing it, we were in the middle of a pandemic. Now, the idea for writing Finding Refuge came well before the pandemic began and prior to um, the murder of George Floyd, or the death of George Floyd. Um, and, you know, that has everything to do with the work that I've done in many different spaces and stewarding grief and supporting grief, people moving through grief and moving through my own grief. And something that I've noticed in many spaces is... Um, a discouragement from processing our, our personal grief even 
even though, as you said, many of us have lost someone, something, moved through a transition and experienced what we would describe as grief and loss. Um, what I also noticed in, the, in my work in groups in particular, and in particular in dismantling racism work, I realized that we were actually really holding grief from history and what continues to happen now, as we know, and that we weren't in the spaces I was in, we weren't calling it grief. We were processing historical events around the construct of race, but not processing the grief around what we've lost because race was constructed and because white supremacy is in place. And one day in a training, I realized, oh, we're doing grief work. And so what if we call this grief? And as I said at the beginning of the, my response to this, you know, I wrote Finding Refuge during the pandemic where we've all lost so many people. We've lost how we thought our lives might be. There's been uncertainty. Things have been revealed to us. And I don't mean that COVID's the only pandemic we've been through, but it, I'd never experienced a pandemic like that, right? right? People talk about multiple pandemics, racism as a, as a pandemic, the health pandemic we've been through. Um, a lack of collective care as a pandemic and individualism and capitalism, right? So there, there are many ways that I think about the pandemic and it was quite striking to write about collective grief when the world was going through a process of losing so much collectively. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the isolation is one thing that you point to, I think, in the, you know, in the book of just this isolation that we've been through and that we're finally coming out of now here in um, you know, March of 2022, or at least it feels like we, of course, that kind of has felt that way to me in the past. Mm -hmm. And then we've only, you know, had to uh, hunker down again. But um, so you've mentioned a little bit of, about this, but um, when you, you know, when you realize that it was uh, grief, um, and of course that you brought your, you know, awareness of yoga tools, you know, into it, um, how do you see, um, how do you see those fitting? How do you see the yoga, um, you know, yoga processes and tools as a way to handle our, our collective grief? There's so much about this. Um, and I'll begin by sharing that the introduction of Finding Refuge is really a story of um, my experience of grief moving through me in a way that I had never felt before. And it was after the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Of course, I was a dismantling racism trainer, a black person in America. Like racism wasn't new, but something about that moment shifted everything for me and others. It feels mm -hmm. like the moment George Floyd was murdered, there was this shift in the, I mean, across the globe, actually, because there was an uprising right. across the globe. So that moment for me, the acquittal of George Zimmerman felt similar. And um, also and was unexpected, my response to it, the grief that was moving through me. Yeah. Right. I was just going to mention for people who maybe um, the name of um, George uh, Zimmerman, Zimmerman may not, yeah, may not be as familiar, but it, um, he was the uh, one who uh, shot and killed then Trayvon uh, Martin, the young man who was just walking to uh, a store just to buy I think he was just going to get some candy or something at the local store. And uh, he was shy. He was young. He was like 17, I believe. Right. Or Yeah. Younger, maybe a little younger than that, but young. Yes. A boy going to yeah. the store to get candy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm glad that you named that. Um, so people would know and have some context. Um, mm -hmm. 
And what helped me move through that grief is my spiritual practice. It's like mm -hmm. the only thing that it, my spiritual practice and yoga made me turn towards the grief. And it's the only thing that could hold the grief, which felt bigger than me. Mm -hmm. And so there was a real teaching in that around um, how can we engage these tools and these practices um, that, that are yoga to help us heal our heartbreak mm -hmm. and our grief that we're all moving through, even if we're not aware of it, it's there. Mm -hmm. It may feel like it's under the surface, but it's, especially at this time, I feel like it's present because our consciousness has been reconfigured because of a two-year pandemic and isolation, right? <laughs> right. Like, like we are not the same people we were before. Mm -hmm. We are not the same as a collective. Some things may be the same. So um, I have found great healing through yoga and in particular related to grief when I felt like the world was upside down mm -hmm. and I didn't know how I was going to piece myself back together. And my practice really reminded me of my divinity and my wholeness mm -hmm. um, and showing up consistently for my practice or to sit on the cushion, even when I did not want to meditate and be with my feelings that really um, I mean, was such a, a vital crucial part of my healing journey. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, how do you see the connection of yoga and racism or anti-racism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, the text that I work with um, the most um, connected to yoga is the Bhagavad Gita. And um, there is so much to say about it. And one lesson teaching that I continue to come back to is the divinity that is inside us all mm -hmm. and the connection, the interconnectedness between us and every living being and everything that has ever been and everything that will ever be. Mm -hmm. um, and connected to that, our soul's work or our dharma, um, how we need to show up in the world and what we need to do and how we can be in right relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just named this because um, systems like white, white supremacy and racism are not rooted in divinity. They're rooted in division. <laughs> like mm -hmm. that is they're rooted in divide and conquer and they feel counter to the practice of yoga and what it calls us into, which is seeing our connection with mm -hmm. everyone, understanding we affect everyone, understanding we are all um, connected and, and um, in relationship. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I came to yoga after I had, been trained up to be a dismantling racism trainer and this curriculum that I've offered for, you know, over two decades now. And I knew from my lived experience prior to becoming a dismantling racism trainer that there was something about separation. As a kid, I knew there's something off, like we're not talking to each other. Why are we disconnected? And I always wanted to bring everyone home that I perceived was lonely. Like I kept noticing something mm -hmm. about why aren't we talking? Like, what's going on? And how are you feeling? I really wanted people's stories. I wanted to connect with them. And I just noticed a lot of disconnection and um, the ways in which folks were treated differently based on their identities. And of course, I was having that experience based on race. So I had that, um, you know, knowledge, wisdom inside me prior to going through dismantling racism training and becoming a trainer. And then I went into yoga and the philosophy as it was presented to me felt like, it was calling us back into wholeness and that it was an antidote to white supremacy in so many ways because of calling us into right role relationship, calling us into dharma, calling us into removing illusion um, and into what I named earlier of remembering how connected we are to everything. And so I would say, you know, for some folks, it's it's 
it takes a minute to understand this intersection of, of yoga and anti-racism or anti-oppression work. And really at the root, it's about us coming um, into our humanity more fully. Mm. No, you said that just so beautifully. Um, absolutely. And one of the things that's interesting to me is when you talk about yoga with people and uh, oftentimes the first thing I'll, I'll, I'll get when I say I, I have a podcast about yoga and they'll go, oh, I do yoga. And, you know, they do. Absolutely. I mean, postures are yoga and yoga is so much more. I mean, yoga itself, the word and Sanskrit word meaning union, oneness, it has the essence of what you were describing, that that essence of the philosophy there of that of that oneness. One of the things that was interesting to me to reflect on in your book was this idea of spiritual bypassing. Um, given that we uh, were just talking about yoga as oneness, and yet there are so many manifestations in the world that are not that are not, you know, expressing that truth, ultimate truth, that I believe as the ultimate truth. Um, and so we can get into this thing about, oh, we're all one. <laughs> and it's a way of just ignoring or pretending that that is the reality here on earth when it, it it's something I believe we are working toward. But it, it is certainly, there are abundant examples that that is not, that that is not the case. And you have a, a beautiful quote um, and this is not someone that I'm familiar with, so forgive me. Is it Resma? Is that how you say the name? Resma Menikin. Resma okay, Menikin. Resma Menikin. And it's on the back of your of your book, which I just I just thought was really um, lovely. Um, I'm just going to read this whole little this little quote just because I think the whole thing is so nice. It says, "Too many of us try to use spiritual practices to lower the charge and weight of our grief." Michelle Cassandra Johnson wisely encourages us to do the opposite, to accept, embrace, and metabolize grief's full charge and full weight. Instead of shying away from our breaking hearts, we need to lean in and experience the breaking. Thus, we find refuge not from our grief, but in it. As Johnson wisely reminds us, spiritual practice is about awakening and becoming aware. It is not about bypassing our collective trauma. I just thought that was such a such a really really lovely, um, you know, quote. I wanted to include the whole thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that? Yeah, um, I'm glad that you raised this about spiritual bypassing because it comes up in so many spiritual communities and. Um, I think it's a reflection of bypassing that comes from our socialization and conditioning. And then it's more complicated in spiritual communities because of the work and trying to attain a light enlightenment. Like it's a little more complicated people in, we've been socialized by dominant culture to, um, you know, look away from, um, where we have privilege, right. Where we're advantaged um, and that's on purpose so that we hold on to our privilege and advantage and, and feel like we're absolved of any responsibility to folks who are marginalized. I think that then has been has influenced, largely influenced spiritual communities. And then we have these absolute truths like we are one in spiritual communities. Right. We are working towards the higher self and enlightenment. And I think it gets very complicated because what I have witnessed is people in some ways um, 
using these absolute truths as a way of, of um, not being accountable, mm. right? And not really doing the difficult work of um, being with the trauma that systems like the patriarchy or transphobia or heterosexism or white supremacy create for us. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think we can afford to bypass given the, I always say this the moment, but then the moment changes and so much is going on, but the patterns are pretty similar, right? I don't think we have time to bypass. And I, I understand that um, in some ways it's encouraged in some spiritual communities and it's also learned because of how we're conditioned and socialized. It's like, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to feel heartbreak about what's happening to the planet and what we're doing to it. I don't want to feel responsible for that. Like it's this, it feels connected to the kleshas too and the yoga sutras too. Like we don't want to feel the things that feel unpleasant to us Mm -hmm. or we only want to feel the things that feel pleasant to us. Mm -hmm. Right. And try to recreate that as if, you know, I mean, everything is temporary anyway, as we know. So, So I just think like, it's it's complex. And I, I think people really need to work to look at how am I bypassing? And also, when I look and feel into the reality of what's going on, how do I take care of myself? Because there's a lot of heartbreak when I feel into as much as I can understand what's going on in our world. Like, there's so much. Yeah. Um, and the urgency around it and feeling like we don't have time to waste, y'all. Like, mm-hmm. we have to actually do something now. <laughs> Mm. That feels almost intolerable, like this urgency in the nervous system. And I mean, so I get it. I, I get it because I think it's too much. Yeah. Like there's too much going on. Yeah. And I think that is a lot of where it comes from is um, the ultimate truth of oneness is so much, um, you know, feels feels so much, I don't know more appealing than seeing all of the ways that we're not there, that we're not there yet, that the, that the relative truth of what we're living in right now doesn't, doesn't get to that point of absolute truth. One of the things you do in the book is you offer several definitions and it it does seem to me to be really important to define some things that some phrases or terms that people may think they understand, but um, may be used or taken in a different way. And we don't have time to go through all of them, although I thought they were all excellent. But I did want to, um, let's actually dive right into what to me is the big one, which is white supremacy. Because um, oftentimes in people's minds, white supremacy, the term white supremacy is used only to refer to white supremacist groups, um, that they have a more limited understanding of, of white supremacy as, you know, the, the Ku Klux Klan or something like that. Um, whereas it has a much, much broader definition. So I'll, I'll turn that over to you um, <laughs> to define it. Yeah, thank you for asking about it. And shared language is an important practice because it contributes to us creating a shared understanding of the problem or what we're responding to. It's like a strategy. If we want to dismantle a system, we actually have to understand what we're talking about, even if we relate to it differently and have different social locations, identities we embody. And so I, um, the definition that's in the book is based on my work with a group called Dismantling Racism Works that I worked with for many, many years. That's where I was trained up. And um, the definition that we would use is, um, and the way we would talk about white supremacy is any, as an ideology and belief system that white is superior. I was uh, conditioned to think about white supremacy as white supremacist, to your point, 
um, and white supremacy groups. And the way that I think about it um, and understand it now is that it, along with other systems of supremacy and dominance, they're they're the air, they're the water. That's how many anti-oppression trainers talk. They're all around us. So it's not, um, certainly white supremacists are, are actively perpetuating, explicitly perpetuating white supremacy and beliefs that um, um, support this notion that white or whiteness is superior and should have more power. And yet we're all affected by the air in some way and have all been conditioned by a white supremacy culture. So um, people get caught up in it because it can, the term has, has a charge for some folks yes. emotionally. Yes, it really uh, does. I, for me, I say it every day, multiple times a day and work that I do so it doesn't have a charge. And it also feels like it's the truth of what's going on. Let's talk about the air and mm -hmm. how I'm implicated in it, how I'm affected by it, how I'm like adding things to the toxic air. Let's talk about that. That's what I'm interested in. And people can get really stuck in the just can you use a different term? And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, there's a whole history and many resources about this now that are available about how race was constructed. And right. as a hierarchy with white at the top, like that is not something right. I made up. That is something that we can sort of trace back and look at and see. Right. And right. there are more and more resources now for people. And so I understand the nervous system response to it. And I think what I encourage people to do is to look at how is this true, mm -hmm. right? So if it's the air, begin to like investigate that and get curious about it. Mm -hmm. And and if one is white bodied, like how have they been conditioned to see themselves as a racialized being or as normal, mm -hmm. you know, um, because white supremacy often does not condition white bodied folks to see themselves as racialized beings, mm -hmm. but does condition white bodied folks to see people like me and black as racialized beings. And that then leads to othering that's conscious or unconscious. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the brief sort of definition and response to your question. We're, we're about to go to the break, but I, I would just say that my own education about this has really been helped by seeing videos of just everyday things that arouse suspicions for people who were black that if I did it would not have, you know, so I could, I mean, we've all seen the videos, right? The guy who was yeah. bird watching in Central Park, the woman who was in a dorm, she's in a dorm common room and was questioned, you know, people in a swimming pool. I mean, seeing that made me much more aware of this idea of white supremacy is I'm able to do those things. I'm able to do those things and not have to worry about someone coming over and asking me about that. And with that, you're listening to the Yoga Hour. Um, I'm with Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Uh, her book is Finding Refuge, Hard Work for Healing Collective Grief. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Practical Spirituality. Positive Messages. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org. The Voice of an Awakening World. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. Insights and Practices for Spiritually Conscious Living. Welcome back from the break. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and I'm here with Michelle Cassandra Johnson, 
And her website, I think, is um, michellecjohnson.com. You can check out her uh, her two books and her um, other programs at her at her website. So, Michelle, <clears throat> you're here today, and we're talking about yoga, racism, and individual and collective grief using your book, Finding Refuge, Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief. So in the introduction to your book, you say that in order to respond to grief, we need to examine and be present to what is breaking our hearts. Furthermore, I I really loved how you actually hold that with, you know, there's two things really. So it's one is remaining open um, and the other, you know, being present and then remaining open hearted that those two really, you know, go um, side by side. Would you say more about that, that being present to what is breaking our hearts and and not closing off and remaining open-hearted? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's what my practice, the practice of yoga has called me into time and time again, is to be with the suffering or to witness it or to notice my own or how I contribute to suffering and the suffering others experience and the suffering that's present on the planet. Um, so to, to be with it and instead of um, closing in, which is, which is the conditioned response or, you know, sort of looking away or avoiding to, to maintain an open heart, even as my heart might be feeling so broken, given what I'm doing, what's happening, what's ha- you know, in the world, what's happening to me. So I just feel like the practice has called me into the heart over and over, um, which means, you know, being with the heartbreak and the story, which is chapter one in the book, which was was I mean, the idea was swirling through me for this book. But the story, chapter one, is about my mother. And, mm-hmm. and that's actually what comes to mind when she was very sick and we thought she was going to transition and she didn't. But we thought she, everyone thought she was, including the doctors. And there was a time when I sat with her um, and was, of course, practicing yoga, like, how can I be with her as she's about to transition and and be with this suffering and support her through this? Um, and instead of closing off, how can I be open to this experience of transition in this way? Um, that, you know, I thought about it before, obviously, like opening our hearts being with the world suffering, given the nature of the work that I do. And it was different to witness my mother. It was a different way to practice yoga. It was like, compassion is what is required of me right now. Um, you know, being open instead of walling off, um, is what is required being honest about how I'm feeling and that I'm completely overwhelmed by this and, Mm -hmm. and being with her Mm -hmm. is what was needed. It was what was called for. And so, and you know, there's many stories in finding refuge where I think I was I was called into, there's a story about my father, called into witnessing being with the suffering that felt overwhelming for my nervous system and heart, but maintaining an open heart to try to respond in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just how I learned to practice yoga and how I think I was taught. And I also think it has to do with the na- nature of who I who I am. I was a social worker for 20 years. Like mm-hmm. I sat with people and they shared their trauma with me and horrific things they shared with me. 
And I needed to stay present with them as my heart was breaking. And in that, those spaces needed to figure out some response, right? Mm-hmm. Where that, that was, let's take a deep breath right now, or I see you and hear you, or um, I'm so sorry that happened, right? Like, I think that also contributes to my framing around a broken heart and an open heart, that work mm-hmm. of doing trauma work pretty intensively with folks for, for mm-hmm. many, many years. Mm. In your book, Finding Refuge, you draw on the Bhagavad Gita a lot. And the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are the two foundational scriptures that we study for the deeper practice of of yoga at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. You offer a couple of quotes from the Gita that I was touched by, and those are on page 46. Would you read those for our listeners? Sure. Um, so there are two. It's verse 2.12 and 2.40. And it's, never was there a time when I did not exist, or you, or these kings, nor will there come a time when we cease to be. And then the second verse I offer in this chapter is, no effort is wasted, no gain ever reversed. Even a little of this practice will shelter you from sorrow. I mentioned to you on the break that that second one, um, even a little of this practice will shelter you from sorrow. I've also uh, heard, I also uh, seen translated as even a little of this practice will um, will protect you from great fear, mm-hmm. um, which I think those are both just beautiful ways of saying it. And that 240 is my is my favorite verse of the, of the Bhagavad Gita. So it was a treat for me to see it featured in your work. Um, why? Why did you pull those two quotes into your work? What was the importance to you of including them? Well, in this the chapter um, that where they're included, I was uh, sharing a story about I was stopped by a police officer. It's a long story. I intuitively felt like it was going to happen right before it happened. Um, and I was I had just finished teaching at Yoga International about skill in action, yoga and justice. And I was on my way somewhere else um, to teach about skill in action and yoga and justice. And so I was like in my work, doing what I think is my dharma on this planet um, and um, was quite afraid by this stop. And my nervous system was really jolted because I was in a predominantly white town and only knew had one person's phone number to call. And and luckily I I remembered I had her phone number and could could call her and say I've been stopped by police because I wanted someone else there to witness it mm-hmm. to to like see what was going on and I wanted help and felt pretty alone and so these two verses I mean I've come back to many many times like we are soul you know it's everlasting we will um, never cease to be and that has helped me move through moments when I have felt fear. Um, and when I've also known I need to respond and do something in this moment. So it's like a the, the first one, 2.12, like the fact that, you know, you've always existed. The essence of who you are feels liberating, especially given what goes on day to day, because I live in a black body in a white supremacist culture and it's mm-hmm. not safe. And so it's like, I will always be. This thing might happen. This police stop may go somewhere, may go awry. 
Um, and I have always been like, just, there's something it, I draw strength from that one. And then, um, 2.40, I love, and it's actually a verse that I was leading a training and, and my co-trainer read from the Bhagavad Gita and I didn't know what she was reading from. And she read 2.40 mm-hmm. and it struck me, like spoke to my spirit and, um, on just the deepest level and really made me think about, you know, the work that we put in means something, even as if we don't see the outcome of it or we don't see the results, which of course the Bhagavad Gita talks about not being attached to the fruits of our labor. Um, but it's not wasted. You know, the work that we do to change the world, it's not wasted. It's like effort we're putting in and it means something. And this, even a little of this practice will shelter, shelter you from sorrow, protect you from great fear. When we practice our dharma and what we're meant to do, that we were able to respond to sorrow differently and feel less sorrow. Like when we're aligned, that's how I, my um, sort of understanding of that verse has evolved over time. And some of that's based on the context and my own like evolution as a spiritual being. But how I understand it now is like when we are aligned, practicing what we are meant to do, connected to the the spirit or God or the highest good or the collective good, that we'll feel less sorrow. And that feels like such a powerful call and practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I included them in this chapter because they felt related to the work I was doing and the the police stop, which wasn't once, you know, it's like in the world where like people's lives have been taken, right? It was that larger context. And it's also, they're very rooted in the work that I do. Um, and I try to devote my work to something bigger than me. I try to remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, as I was reflecting on them, you know, your, your call to both be present and be open-hearted, I think both of those verses really are helpful to that, to that effort, that if we can feel our connection to our source, to our, our, that spark of divinity within ourselves, that oneness that we were talking about, um, that can be very freeing. And then, um, you know, that, that, uh, importance of the, of the consistency of our practice to, is what allows us, me, to then feel that protection from sorrow, that protection from sorrow. If I have that, that just gone going daily reminder of who I really am, um, that it just is so helpful. So that's what it meant to me. So <laughs> thank you for mm-hmm. including those. One of the things I appreciated about the book is that you include with each chapter, some exercises for us to go more deeply into our own hearts and you outline a, you outline a, a, a set of practices that that often starts finding a quiet place, either in our homes or in nature, and then having a journal or something to you know write in. And one of the things that you include that I thought was really interesting is you encourage us to find an object that represents what is breaking our hearts, and to keep that object in a place where we can see it daily. Um, so. Perhaps we could start there. Why did you think that part was obviously the part of like finding a quiet place and having a journal to write? And those are really supportive practices for turning inward and examining what is in our hearts, how they might be broken. What is the significance or what the importance of having this object that represents what's breaking our hearts? Yeah, I love this question. One, I, I um, in Skill in Action, I invited people to 
to get an object too. And in my next book that comes out next spring, I did the same thing. So there's something about objects for me and presence and like, this is work. You're in a like consistent practice with these themes that I'm offering. There's something about that that I really love apparently because it's (laughs) going to be in the third book that's coming out, right? So that's one answer. And the other is that it is really, you know, I've had people ask me about this object, particularly with finding refuge and how they didn't want to get an object and put it somewhere they would see it because they didn't want to be reminded, which I really hear. Like, mm-hmm. I, I feel that, I hear it, I understand it. And the work that they had to do to, to pick an object that's connected to brokenheartedness and to put it somewhere they would see it or feel it or sense it each day. And, I, you know, finding refuge is really, um, it is a call to come into the heart. And I feel like one way we can do that is by reminding ourselves of, of um, not just what feels good in the heart or what might feel confusing, but also what um, is breaking our hearts connected to the suffering on the planet and our own suffering, or what grief haven't we processed? And is there an object connected to that? Mm-hmm. I want people to turn towards the things that often I've been conditioned and socialized not to talk about, mm-hmm. like grief, like loss like suffering in the way that we've been talking about it. I mean, in spiritual communities, we talk about suffering. And when I, you know, move out of off the Zoom call where we are engaged in a, in a um, dialogue about spirit or I move out of a physical space, then I move into the world and people aren't inviting me to go connect with my heart. And they're certainly not asking me, you know, what, what broke your heart today? Like no one's asking me that. Mm-hmm. And so the object is like a, there are many things going on, including there are things breaking your heart, whether or not you know it. And so I'm inviting you to really look at that, not as a way to, you know, be overcome by sorrow and despair. That's not what finding refuge is about. It's about healing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we can heal if we bypass the brokenheartedness. Mm -hmm. If we don't feel it, if we don't feel it. Like like, um, the quote that I read earlier, um, which I just love the way that Resma Menachem put it, Accept, embrace, and metabolize grief's full charge and full yes. weight to metabolize our grief. That seemed mm-hmm. very a very powerful way to put it to me. Mm-hmm. As we've talked about, there's a difficulty in this in this work that probably leads people to want to do spiritual bypassing of it. That it can be painful to and, and overwhelming. I mean, we've talked about the the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. We haven't mentioned the more recent over the past month, you know, the situation in Ukraine that we're yes. seeing all of these people, this just tremendous suffering that is happening there. And that's just one of the many, many parts of the world that are um, where there's such suffering, it, it can just be really, really overwhelming. And you do talk about the need to create boundaries to maintain our energy or our prana and also to connect to our own inner wisdom, our intuition. Would you say more about that, this this idea about boundaries and why they're important and um, and connecting to our intuition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I um, I believe I was... I actually believe we're all intuitive and that things get in the way of us connecting with our intuition and we get distracted or things make us doubt. We have experiences that make us doubt the wisdom we embody and our intuition. And I feel like um, 
I was a pretty intuitive child and connected to intuition. Um, my mother is very intuitive and my grandmother was as well. Um, so I think some of it has been passed on to me and my connection to intuition. Um, and I'm also sensitive. And as I described earlier, as a ch- I was a very sensitive child. Um, I'm a sensitive adult, but I was taking in things and really trying to process them and understand them in a way that, you know, my mom just, I was a pensive child. Like I was, I would ask questions and she would look at me like, why are you asking this question now? You're 10. You know, like I was curious about the world. Um, And she didn't ever respond in a negative way. She just, I think was like, what? who is this child speaking to me about these things when other kids are like running around in their yard, she's asking me about, you know, children and not having children because of the world. Like I was under 10 when I said the age of 10, when I said that to my mother and I remember every detail of it in her response. So I'm, I'm a highly sensitive person. And, um, I think many people are actually. And with that, what I learned over time is that I needed to set boundaries because I can't take in everything that's going on. Um, I can't um, look at right now, I can read about the images from the Ukraine. I can't. I can't look at them because they'll end up in my dreams. Mm. That is what happens to me. And so I think boundaries are so important. It's it's not, that's not a a bypass. That's an intentional, I want to know what's going on. And this is the way I can take in the information. But if I try to take it in this way, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And so I would invite people listening to think about that for themselves. Like, we can't know everything that's going on. There's too much going on. And we have to make some decisions about the way we want to consume and integrate information and the events that are happening in the world that are horrific and toxic and tragic. Again, not to bypass, but we have to make some decisions so we can function. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. if I take on everything that's happening in the world, I I wouldn't be able to function. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to feel joy. I wouldn't be able to be in connection. I would be like completely overwhelmed with despair somewhere and um, not knowing how to be among the living. Like I just wouldn't know how to do that. And so I can't stress. And of course, being a social worker, boundaries were part of that too. So I learned a lot about boundaries in that specific way. But I just think we, we can't respond to everything. Mm -hmm. which is a really hard lesson. Like that breaks my heart. And I just know it's true. We just can't. And so what can we respond to? This relates to the Gita and Dharma. What is our work to do knowing that we can't do everything? Um, And what I said about intuition, I think systems like capitalism get in the way of us really listening to our intuition and what we know, and they sort of cloud our judgment and our inner wisdom Mm -hmm. and want us to buy into systems that make us believe we're not enough and we need more to be enough, but we'll never be enough. Like that is what capitalism says to me every day as I participate in the system of it um, because of how things are structured. Um, And I, I just think we know more than we remember. Um, and that is something I talk about in the book is remembering to remember, like really getting into the practice of listening, which practice of yoga really invites us into listening more deeply and Mm -hmm. feeling and sensing with some boundaries, knowing we can't, we can't take in everything. 
but we can be more deeply connected to what is going on, which requires presence and stillness and quietness, um, which is hard given the urgent, it's like difficult to find stillness sometimes given the urgent concerns that we're all trying to respond to. But again, we can't respond to everything. So that's kind of a long answer and it's a lot, but I think it's, you know, speaks to your question about intuition and boundaries and sort right. of the relationship between the two. Right. Well, I think what you're pointing to is we're all trying to figure out what is right action in a given situation. What What is ours to do? Because certainly I want to do what is mine to do. I don't want to ignore it. And I also realize, as you said, I can't do everything. Um, and so it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing question and an ongoing opportunity to tune into our intuition because that's where we get our guidance, right? That's, that's how, you know, what's yours to do is you feel it, you feel it in your heart about something that you need to take an action. So, and with that, we are almost at the end. I wanted to give you a chance to close for the last couple of minutes what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to share with our listeners? Yeah. Um, I want to share that I spend my days with people who are sitting with questions around how to show up in the world and sitting with heartbreak and um, I'm trying to practice what we named about opening the heart and um even though so much feels like it's falling apart and it is, I have hope. Um, and so I want to share that. Like I'm, I'm inspired by all the people I get to connect with um, and like be in the mess with is what I call it. Like we're all trying to wade through this mess and figure it out and we're going to make all the mistakes and how do we still talk to each other when we make mistakes and when we can't take care of everything that's going on in the world. Um, I have hope. And so I just want to offer that because I, I do feel like what I said is true about there's too much going on and people's nervous systems are like, <laughs> we, I've said during the pandemic, I was like, we were not, our nervous systems, they were not designed to, to like be in a sustained state of crisis. Right. And yet here we are. Um, and, and somehow I still um, maintain hope that, and it makes me think of the, Bhagavad Gita, like we have always been, and we, the soul, the essence of who we are, has always been and will always be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that provides refuge and solace for me. So I'll just invite people to be with that when the when it feels too big. And also a practice I do is when it, something feels too big, I'm like, spirit, can you help me with this? I can't hold it all. Mm-hmm. So I offer it to something bigger than me, not as a like, I'm giving this to you to burden you but as an awareness that there's something bigger going on that I don't know or understand um, and that I need support and help. And so whatever that is for folks, if it, for me, it's spirit. I'm like, here, I need some help. I'm completely overwhelmed by this, these emotions. Um, so people can find that practice too. So mm-hmm. those are the words. Mm. Lovely. And with that, you've been listening to the yoga hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and co-host of the Yoga Hour, and we've been discussing using the tools of yoga to heal from the collective grief that results from all of the traumatic things that are happening in our world. 
My guest has been Michelle Cassandra Johnson, licensed clinical social worker, dismantling racism trainer, yoga teacher and practitioner and author of the book we've been discussing today, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief. You can find out more about Michelle and her work on her website, michellecjohnson.com. This program will be posted on our website, theyogahour.com, and all of her information, including her website, will be there as well. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. Thank you. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, we have daily online meditation in the morning from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. This is all Pacific times in the afternoon at 4 p.m. and on Monday evenings at 7.30. There's also a Sunday satsang at from 10 to 11 each week. All times, again, are Pacific times. You can listen to Yogacharya O'Brien's talks at her website, ellengraceobrien.com, and you can learn more about the many spiritual practice programs offered online and in person at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment at their website, csecenter.org. Join us next time on the show when I'll be speaking with award-winning author Dean Slider. He and I will be discussing spiritual wisdom in great literature. He has a a new book out that looks at Western literature and how it's uh, the Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, I believe is the title, and that'll be an interesting talk. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can go to our website, theyogahour.com, and sign up for our mailing list. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes and Mickey Coronado, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at Unity Online Radio. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity, the newest in voice-activated technology, available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today.